politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. And you're listening to KPFK 90.7 FM for all of Southern California and streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Thanks for joining us today. A wonderful program for you. We're going to talk about consciousness and quantum physics, the interface of metaphysics and physics, I think, of uh, spirituality and the material world with a fellow who uh, I consider to be a a good friend. Uh, We check in with each other every 20 years, it seems. And I knew Fred when he was in his 60s. I knew him when he was in his 40s. And since time runs in both directions, I now know him in his 20s. And he he joins us today from San Francisco. Uh, You may know him as Dr. Quantum from the What the Bleep movie, Fred Allen Wolf. Fred, good afternoon, and welcome to KPFK. Good afternoon to you, Michael. Thank you. Pleasure to be seen and heard by you. Well, there's no way for anybody to know it, but you and I have been sitting here before we went on the air, chatting away, swapping stories, and having a great old time. So I hope we didn't wear ourselves out, that we still have plenty of enthusiasm for the topic we're about to discuss. As I mentioned, I first met you in the uh, early 80s, I think uh, your second book had just come out, your first solo endeavor, which was uh, Taking the Quantum Leap, I think. Was that the name of it? That's correct, Taking the Quantum Leap. And uh, we had such a great time and would run into each other at various occasions, Whole Life Expo and such. And you really were my introduction to this idea that quantum physics could give us some insight into the nature of consciousness. And for those who saw What the Bleep, which I guess later was retitled Down the Rabbit Hole, uh, as Dr. Quantum, you go into it even more deeply. So I'd like to discuss that a little bit and start with just a simple question about how would you describe the interface of what's known as quantum physics or quantum mechanics, and the nature of consciousness, of awareness? Well, I can do so, but there are different ways of approaching this. One way is to look at the subject of knowledge, consciousness, in a historical manner. So, for example, how do we know anything? Well, in order to know something, we have to label it. We have to give it a name. And in giving something a name and then seeing it as objectively real, out there, tangible, uh, then it becomes a thing that has value. For example, I see the person sitting across the room. So the person sitting across the room, there's a value associated with it's a person. There's a value associated with he's sitting in a chair. There's various values that get attached to this person. Quantum physics, like all of science, is an attempt to put value to things that are considered to be outside of the mind, so-called objective things. So that works for Newtonian physics. It works to launch people into space. It works for making airplanes and people flying across the world. It works very well. It's called Newtonian physics. We assign values that we can predict with certainty that's what's going to occur. With quantum physics, because of technology and because of our improvement to actually look at things on a very fine scale, we found that the mechanism, the means by which we attach values to the things we were looking at didn't work. In fact, they gave us contradictory 
or paradoxical things. Things appeared in two places at once. Things did not appear to go from one place to another going along a continuous track. They simply went from here to there, pop, 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 like popping popcorn in places which it just, we didn't know how to, how to deal with that. So quantum physics was the mathematical tool that was invented to try to bring some order to this strange poppiness that we would call the observational world of the very small. So then the problem became, well, where is this popping taking place? Is it popping out there? Or is this something happening in the observer? Are we, are we the ones making it pop? Because the mathematical tool that we use to make quantum physics seem sensible and logical doesn't have any pops in it. It only has things changing in a rather mechanical, more or less kind of boringly fashion, flowing called waves. Uh, we didn't see any pops, but we know the pops occur because that's what we observe. So then it became, well, maybe it's consciousness or mind that's making the things pop. In other words, without mind, nothing would pop and everything would be in flow and nothing tangible would exist because tangibility is part of popping. In order for something to exist, you have to have a pop. And if we don't have a pop, it doesn't really exist out there. Werner Eisenberg was the first to notice, guy who invented the uncertainty principle, was the first to notice that atoms were not things. He realized that atoms were constructs of mind that we brought in to make pictures of what we think these pops are actually doing. That's a nutshell. So when we were told in high school that electrons revolve in orbits around and around in a molecule, actually they appear and disappear? They pop in and out of existence? Is that an example of what you're saying? That is an example, provided we make an observation of these electrons. If we're not observing them, they're in this world of unobservable things, things we only picture in our minds. So the orbits that you think about, things moving around in circles, those aren't real. Those are pictures of what we try to imagine is going on. That's called the Bohr model, for example, of the atom. At the time when Bohr came up with his model back in the early 20s, or actually before that even, there, were, there was an adherence to the picture that we had of planets going around the sun. So atoms were electrons traveling around nuclei, and that was the picture we had. But that picture is not a true picture. It's only a picture that we used. And quantum physics, the things that it pictures now, waves and particles and quantum fields and all that, that's also just pictures we have. To tell you the truth, they're the best we can do to explain what these poppings are all about, but we don't really know. So Einstein talked about the equivalence of energy and solid stuff, uh, energy and matter, and that matter is really a form of energy. The double slit experiment that again, referring to the What the Bleep movie, I think, as Dr. Quantum, you do well, just the most concise job of explaining the results, if not the implications of the double slit experiment, that these particles as single electrons or photons or whatever are shot out of this gun one at a time through these double slits, that they make an interference pattern, a wave pattern on the back wall, unless we put a detector there. In which case, they go back to seeming to be particles rather than waves. And so the question <laughs> that is brought up, but not really addressed in the movie, is how do they know? How, <laughs> how does the particle know that's being observed and whether to behave as a particle or as a wave, or are they always both? 
They're neither. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> They're always neither. <laughs> what happens is we can make pictures. And the, it's the pictures that we make models of, and the pictures give us the story of, oh, they're waves until they're observed and they're particles. And this is the picture we have. Actually, they're not waves and they're not particles. All those are just ways of, of making some kind of sense. They're things that we've put together based upon our observational powers to observe larger scale things like baseballs and bats and automobiles and planets and moons and things of that sort. Those things we can observe and those things seem to be taking place whether we're observing them or not. The moon seems to be there whether we're looking or not. Those are pictures we have. But when we come to the subatomic or atomic world, we use the same pictures, but they no longer apply. I think the tricky part here is if we ask some hypothetical, like, would the physical universe exist if there were no one here to observe it, sort of requires us to look at our definition of observe. Exactly. In other words, the, the, the mystics distinguish between consciousness and awareness and suggest that even if there were nothing to observe, there would still be this ground of awareness. Can you talk about that a little bit? Do you understand what I'm suggesting here? Yeah, I do. Um, the approach that's taken by modern physics to this question is what is called quantum field theory. It's an attempt to try to make everything, including the planets, the sun, the Big Bang, everything that ever occurred and is occurring, uh, picturable in terms of something more basic. And that more basic thing is called a field. And by a field, imagine a field of wheat or a field of anything or the ocean. They're just a gigantic field, uh, an expanse in which everything is yet to be, but isn't somehow present. That field has so far been illuminated or made into a picture called the Higgs field. And that Higgs field is what we believe is responsible for giving matter mass. In other words, the electron does not have any mass. It's like a ghost, but it interacts. The field, the electron field, interacts with this Higgs field, like wind blowing through through a wheat field, and creates a kernel of wheat, a pop. And there we have the electron with mass. So all particles seem to pop out in this quantum field, this, due to this Higgs field. What is left out in the physicist's picture is the deeper meaning of the Higgs field. And in my thinking, the Higgs field is the physical manifestation part of the conscious mind of the universe. So it's mind, fundamentally, that is responsible for the creation of the various things that we see, which appear as a result of interaction of fields of thought, the Higgs field, the electron field. These are not things which don't exist, but they're mind fields. And when they interact, they produce particles of various kinds, all the kinds that exist, including the Big Bang itself. You say in the What the Bleep movie, that you talk about entanglement, and maybe we should touch on that briefly, the, the concept of particles that have an initial relationship near each other could be very far apart, light years apart, and still respond instantaneously to some external force. Spin one, the other spins in the opposite direction. 
Um, and in What the Bleep, you say, well, before the Big Bang, there was but one point. And so everything is entangled. And when I heard you say that, I just rewatched the movie recently. When I heard you say that, I had to sit back in the chair and think, <laughs> think about that for a moment. What are the implications, Fred, of everything touching everything, of this vast universe actually being one thing? Well, the implication is that touching means beyond space and time. Because if things are touching, even though from our point of view or from any point of view, they're separated in space and in time. For example, one thing could be earlier, one thing could be later, one thing could be on Mars, the other thing could be on Earth at the, at one time, uh, and yet they are somehow influencing each other. <clears throat> means these things are touching in a way, or touching without necessarily involving space and time. That space and time becomes an arena in order to put the touching into separate categories of what we call entanglement. So everything is touching, yes, but in order to understand the implications of that, we have to embed it and ourselves in space and time. Space and time become the yardsticks of physics. Without space and time, there is no physics. There is no way to determine or to measure or see or have any idea about things being separate from other things. So space and time becomes the great arena in which we put the fields, we put the particles, we put the, the, the particles that are touching that are separated in space and time. We put them all into this field. And what results is not a com completely completely consistent and understandable picture. It's a paradoxical picture in which quantum physics is the epitome of that paradox. Well, our brain is wired to perceive three dimensions of space and have some understanding of the fourth dimension of time. I'm not sure we're capable of considering dimensions beyond those four. Again, to reference what the bleep, uh, Dr. Quantum visits Flatland and tries to explain this to a two-dimensional creature that you're more than a circle, <laughs> you're a sphere. And uh, how, do we, how do we grok this idea? How do we comprehend the notion that there may be 10 or 11 dimensions or more? Well, there are some hints. There are some pathways that get lit up for a short time, then we lose sight of them, that are suggesting ways to proceed. The 60s, LSD, that certainly opened up some pathways to see these things. Some people couldn't see them at all and just got obliterated by it. But a lot of people were illuminated by what LSD taught them about connections that were beyond space and time. There's right now going on in the world, there's a, a, a lot of interest in UFO. Uh, there's seemingly now, although I looked at these reports, the government is saying, well, we don't know what they are, but they are. <laughs> That's very different than what they used to say. We don't know what they are, we, but we don't think they're anything. Now they're saying, we don't know what they are, but they are. So there seems to be a different kind of, let's say, growing awareness. And in my mind, thinking about this, and I only can speculate about it all, is that we are witnessing events, and especially the ones that you see on TikTok and all these crazy UFO pictures that you see that the Navy has taken or whatever, which I can never understand. They look very fuzzy to me. But if they are what is being described as things which seem to disappear and reappear and go from one place to another place, seems like we're looking at things that are pretty quantum. And it seems like we're looking at things which do not have a fixed amount of mass. So we may be seeing ways in which the 
connection between matter and the Higgs field is temporarily disrupted. So these things are no longer massive, and therefore without mass, there's no gravitation that can affect them. Nothing can affect them. There's no space or time for them. They just zip. They do whatever they do. And so I think we're seeing something like uh, a disconnection <laughs> taking place between this Higgs field, which is part of consciousness, if you will, or the, the part of consciousness that deals with making matter appear as solid, and appearing is part of consciousness in which matter is not solid. And that image, that afterburn, is still being shown, and we're, that's what Navy pilots are seeing. That's my speculation. <laughs> sort of like uh, tracing on LSD, where you, you move your hand across the field of vision, and it's like, 20 hands. It's where your hand was. It's where it used to be. It's where it is now. It's where it's not yet been. And in college, uh, I had a tapestry on my wall and I did this industrial dose of LSD and sat there for hours and watched the horses running around the outside of the, the embroidered horses <laughs> running. And when I touched the tapestry, they would stop. And the minute I took my hand off the tapestry, they would run. And so I played this tapping game for hours of, you know, to see if I had any control or influence. And uh, you're saying I, that's all perception, whether I was straight or whether I was blazing or whatever, it's all in my head. Well, I'm not saying, I don't, I don't know how to say it's in your head, it's in, it's in mind. It's part of the way the mind mind works. And in your brain, it's a field of mind that works with what it's got to work with. And uh, you've su supplied it with a rich matter field of its own, which is already interacting with the mind field to make all the various particles of matter, which make up the neuronal cells, the the glia cells of your brain, all those various things, which are part of the DNA, RNA, all that stuff that's going on, those are already in a self-regulatory manner interacting with the field. And when you take these substances which influence those connections, you begin to see a different view of what is supposedly reality. What you're seeing is not imaginary. It's as real as what you're seeing without taking LSD. It's just you're getting a different glimpse of it. See, it's a mistake to think that because people have hallucinations, they're seeing things. They're not seeing things. They're seeing reality in a different way. It's like the magician who shows you a trick and suddenly you decide to look behind the curtain. And there behind the curtain is the wizard. And he say, oh, don't look at me. <laughs> yeah. But you say, ah, I'm sorry. I took LSD. I am looking at you. <laughs> don't look at the man behind the curtain. Uh, well, Toto pulled the curtain back for me that day. I suppose somewhere the horses are still running around that tapestry. <laughs> uh, Fred Allen Wolf is my guest, and he's Dr. Quantum and a renowned quantum physicist and the author of many books, including Taking the Quantum Leap. And we'll have more if you stay tuned. We'll be right back. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. We realize that times are definitely tough for so many right now and that you may have had to rethink what you can afford to give to your favorite nonprofit organizations. That's why we're so appreciative of those contributions that we actually do receive. It says a lot about how important KPFK is to you that you continue to voluntarily invest in this station. We thank you because you're helping to provide this essential community service to everyone in our region and beyond. You're helping to move the conversation forward. And if you're able to, but haven't yet, please make that investment in KPFK right now. Please go to kpfk.org and pledge securely online or call us at 
818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. Thank you. It's the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK, the show about consciousness. And that's such a huge topic. It's all-encompassing because, as we suggest at the introduction of each of these shows, consciousness is fundamental. You just can't get behind it. It's like trying to see the back of your head, or Ellen Watts used to say, trying to bite your own teeth. It's just so fundamental and so all-encompassing. So we do a wide variety of programs, but when we talk about quantum physics, that's really getting down to the nubs, that quantum, of course, is a reference to, well, let me ask Dr. Quantum, that subatomic particles, the ultimate building block, uh, packet, what exactly is a quantum? A quantum is comes from the Greek word, which means a measure of something, an amount of something. A quanta is like a one of something, a two of something, a three of something. Those are called quanta. And the word quantum... Like quantity. Yes, but a quantity could be non-discrete. In other words, a quantity could be a cup of water, uh, in which you have a lot of ounces, but, you know, how many milliliters? It's smooth flowing. Quanta implies a discrete amount one of something, two of something, three of something. So quantum physics came into being because people observed that light itself was made of quanta. That it was there was one quote, one kind of quanta, two kinds of there were one photon, two photons, three photons. So people began to see that there was something accountable in terms of things being separated from each other. And that's how quantum physics originally got its name. We're often told or, or we hear that there are these two divisions of physics. There is classical physics, uh, Newtonian physics for big objects, basketballs, billiard balls on the table, rocket ships, cars, and then quantum mechanics or quantum physics, which are these tiny subatomic particles. I think Stephen Hawking's coined the phrase, the ultimate grittiness of the universe. And the laws seem very different. How are we coming, Fred, in our attempts to find a unified field? Where Where is the interface between these two? And do you think that's resolvable? Well, let's put it this way. We are in a state of becoming rather than a state of finality. Rather than saying we're, we're closer to the final goal, I would say that we are on the pathway to a goal which we do not really know what it will be. It's in some way invisible to people because they have different visions of what that goal should be. For physicists or scientists in general that are fundamentally materialists, uh, pragmatists in a sense of being things have to be out there whether I see them or not, for those types of people, the final goal is ultimate matter. But for people like myself and other people uh, who seem to be more, you might call, I in some sense, idealist, or I don't know what the right word would be, we see mind as being the fundamental final goal that we are trying to achieve some understanding of. So we see matter as a stepping stone into mind rather than, as is presently viewed by materialists, as mind as a way to grasp matter, but mind itself is not something we are wishing even wishing to grab hold of. One of the most fascinating aspects of consciousness, for me anyway, is my sense 
and I think many others feel this way, but I don't hear it discussed very much, that with consciousness comes a set of ethics or uh, values or morals that uh, expanded awareness or higher consciousness suggests greater morality or a different set of values than one would have if they were more survival-oriented, more in their defensive fight-or-flight animal nature. It's easy for those values to shift in a very different way. Can you uh, expound on that a little bit? What is your sense of the relationship of consciousness or awareness in a metaphysical sense with morality, values, or ethics? Well, that's a good question, and it's it's pretty deep, and it goes into a, uh, you might say, spiritual uh, way of thinking, primarily before the advent of scientific modes of thought. The question is whether or not the moralistic values, the moral values or spiritual values uh, do unto others as you have them do unto you, things of that sort, whether those values are integral to consciousness or are they things or are they ideas or concepts which are part of the field which appears as a result of interacting fields. In other words, it's not so much in my mind, that consciousness has any distinct morality to it. It may be neither moral nor immoral or amoral. It just things like morality and care and wisdom and these various things that human beings are capable of achieving are, I think, part of consciousness, but they're not necessarily in consciousness itself other than as ideas of consciousness. I don't know how to quite make that any clearer. Yeah, yeah, I understand. In other words, are they innate and inherent or a matter of conception or perception uh, or projection even? Yeah, I I would say that, that, that they're more in the line of conception. And uh, that, I mean, to me, they're the correct perception. I mean, to me, that's, intrinsic to my belief system that that uh, one should behave in a way which is not harmful to others. That's why I'm anti-war, uh, anti-killing. I mean, I mean basically, I, I feel that way. But yet at the same time, I'll eat meat. Now, how can I eat meat if I'm against killing? Because in order to eat meat, an animal had to die. Now, I don't eat a lot of meat, I must admit. But at the same time, I condone the killing of livestock in order to eat meat. Otherwise, I couldn't eat meat. I'm sure that eventually we may overcome this, and I may, I mean, I practically have lost my taste for meat almost all altogether. In fact, for a time, I was a vegetarian, but it, it's still an idea. It's still a concept. It's not something which consciousness comes down and says, like God, like a God Almighty, Thou shalt thou kill, thou shalt obey these commandments. It, it, it doesn't work that way. In my mind, it did. Christ and Buddha ate meat, but I understand the contradiction. I have that same internal conflict. And uh, so I've, you know, pretty much eliminated dairy and, and reduced the amount of meat drastically, but I still feel sometimes I need that protein. I think the conflict or contradiction could be in part that, paradoxically, we are both. We are spirit and this loving energy this that, that longs for justice. That, to me, is a fascinating part of spiritual love, how much we care about things being fair and just. It seems so inherent, so deeply embedded and beyond any decision or enculturation or or education. But we're also animals. We're also in these physical animal bodies that have evolved 
since the dinosaur from rodents into primates into humans and both things are true we stand a leg in both worlds yeah yeah yes so if somebody were to just say blatantly as if there were moses on the mountain consciousness is love not in an emotional sense but capital l spiritual love consciousness is love what would your mental process <laughs> what would you go through in your head trying to reconcile that well again these are consciousness can be subdivided into categories which has nothing to do with love and love can be divided or separated out from anything having to do with consciousness it could be just pure sex or whatever i don't know but if you look at it as a field that uh, love being the encompassing field of consciousness, then you might say they're the same thing. Yeah, again, this uh, this idea that human beings, even the uh, most unconscious human beings, are capable of loving and caring and kindness, unless they're absolutely psychopathic or sociopathic, there is that, or suffering some sort of... Uh, significant brain injury but people are good i'm intrigued by the fact that a lie detector it seems to me reveals an inherent goodness that we stress the body when we lie and the brain knows you're lying even if the conscious mind can justify it somehow and say well lying is relative and subjective but the brain knows the difference, and the brain responds to lies as if something dangerous is happening. So the fact that a polygraph works, what are, what are we to presume from that about the inherent goodness of humanity? Got me. <laughs> Am I, I outside know. your field, Fred? We're, we're, we're at a point where I'm just drawing a blank. Well, to me, that's part of consciousness. And I don't claim to understand it obviously there are some questions where you know it's more important to just keep asking the question than believe you've arrived at some sort of answer but um as we evolve these questions we seem to be in a, in a make it or break it sort of a plateau i think Evolution is often a stair-step function of relatively little change and then a quantum leap and relatively little change followed by another leap. We seem to be standing at the verge of some big break. The polarization and divisiveness of uh, you're either going to hold on to your fear and stay with the idea of separation or you're going to begin to move toward this idea of harmony, interconnectedness, and unity that quantum physics and consciousness in the context of quantum physics is suggesting. Entanglement, interconnectedness, unity. I mean, we have separate brains, but it appears we have one mind and one heart. How are you with that? Yeah, okay, I... Don't have again. I have, I have no comment to make, uh, but uh, uh, basically, in the theme that you're moving towards, I'm in total agreement. Well, so are you suggesting, as a scientist, that uh, there's not much that a mystic can expect, much more that we can expect to get from? the empiricism of quantum science about validating the one mind, the one ocean that we seem to be immersed in? Let me try to explain this as simply as I can. Quantum physics is a way of thinking, and all ways of thinking are isolated from other ways of thinking to a large extent and connected to other ways of thinking to smaller extents. For example, Quantum physics is isolated from classical physics, but there are some pathways between the two. Quantum physics is isolated from the field of consciousness, but there are some connections between consciousness and quantum physics, namely this thing called the observer effect. 
But quantum physics is itself a way of proceeding, a way of thinking, a procedural map in which we go from one step to another. And in following that map, in researching that, we have not reached the end of our researching. We have not reached the point where we say, ah, we now completely understand how quantum physics explains this. There are mysteries and paradoxes which keep cropping up. And in our attempt to explain these mysteries and paradoxes, new kinds of visions begin to appear. So let me, if I may, uh, tell you about some research that I'm presently engaged in, which deals with the subjects we are talking about, namely awareness, materiality, what's real, what's not real. Okay. Lately, although this, the first few papers that began to appear about this in 1960s, people have begun to wonder about what is called contextuality, the context in which something appears. And normally in the objective worldview, if something is something, it doesn't matter what its environment is, it's that thing anyway. You put it against a white background or a black background, if it's orange, it's still going to be orange. But in quantum physics, we find that when you measure something, or determine the value of something, the context in which that something is determined can actually change the value of what you see. In other words, what you see is not just a question of the thing in itself, but it's a question of the thing in its context. So the context in which we have a, an appraisal of the world may be our own thought processes. Ah, the world's a terrible place. It's ugly. It's terrible. And therefore, anything which appears in that ugly world is going to be equally ugly. Or we may have the context, things are beautiful in the background, but whatever appears in that background, whatever I determine, is going to be ugly or beautiful or something. Quantum physics tells us that the context can actually change the value of the thing being observed. In fact, the thing itself doesn't seem to have a value that's frozen out there irrespective of the context. However, and this is what's tricky, if it was possible that a thing could have a value that even though the context could have changed that value, it would be possible that the context for that thing is not set in the past, but is set by our future thinking. What we think will happen can be the context for how we're going to go observe a thing which has already been observed. In other words, the past has been predetermined, but not by what happened in the past, but by what we are thinking right now in the present or in the future. There are those experiments with random number generators, computers generating random clicks, and then people being told to try to, after the fact, influence those clicks. Yes. And they're able to do that. So yes, that sort of makes a joke out of the timeline. Well, it, I would say a joke that causality is a very precious thing, and it makes us adhere to not walking in front of cars when the light is red. I mean, <laughs> we want to have causality because... We don't want to be reckless about it. We don't, we don't want to recklessly disassemble the material that's been so carefully assembled to make a Michael Brenner or a Fred Allen Wolf. So we have to be very, very careful about how we go about violating causality. But these experiments indicate that causality is not strictly from past to future. It could actually go from future to past. And that's maybe what these experiments have been showing. In quantum physics, now we have uh, experiments and we have theoretical proofs that that is indeed what happens, that the uh, future, the knowledge of the future can affect what is absolutely observed in the past. Well, we've come full circle now. I, I started by saying time runs in 
both directions. And now that you're in your early 20s, um, it's, it's a joy to connect with you again. Fred Allen Wolf, my guest. Fred, thank you so very much for taking this time to be with us today on KPFK. You must have a website. And you, how many books do you have at this point? 17 or 18, depending on how yeah. you count. And uh, what's the best way for folks to find out more information about you? What's your best website? Well, the best way and the simplest way is just remember Dr. Quantum, DR period, Quantum. Just type that into any search engine and let whatever appears appear. And uh, <laughs> there will be some way to connect with me from those. My website is pretty simple. It's my name.com. Fred Allen Wolf, spell it with 12 letters, F-R-E-D-A-L-A-N, wolf like the animal, fredallenwolf.com. That's my website. So click on fredallenwolf.com or type in Dr. Quantum on any search engine and what appears will appear. There's a lot of stuff out there on Dr. Quantum. I'm on YouTube, uh, TED Talks, um, uh, videos, uh, audios. Uh, you can find me. <laughs> and now this show too. Fred Allen Wolf, again, thank you, sir. It's just such a, a pleasure to be able to chat with you today. Best of luck to you and your family. We'll talk again, I'm sure, sometime in the future. And uh, thanks again for being with us on KPFK. Thank you, Michael. Short break, folks, and we'll be back right after this. KPFK supporters include the Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum's 2021 Repertory Season, sponsored by the S. Mark Taper Foundation. Shakespeare Classics, A Midsummer Night's Dream, and Julius Caesar Return, plus the world premiere of a new play, The Last Best Small Town. Visitors can picnic before the show in the gardens surrounding the Theatricum's outdoor amphitheater. Tickets and information available at kpfk.org or theatricum.com or by calling 310-455-3723. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. I'm your host, Michael Benner. Heard every Tuesday at 1 o'clock on KPFK. Broadcast in Southern California for Greater Los Angeles at 90.7 FM. In Santa Barbara, we're heard at 98.7 FM. Down in Northern San Diego, 93.7 FM. In the high desert, 99.5 FM. That's in Ridgecrest and China Lake area. And, of course, streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Again, I want to thank our guest today, Fred Allen Wolf, Dr. Quantum, for taking the time to be with us. I didn't say anything at the head of the show, but I don't think Fred would uh, mind me revealing that he is 86 years old. And if if you think about what you just heard, coming from an 86-year-old, it certainly speaks to the, uh, what do you call it, the use-it-or-lose-it axiom, you know? The brain is not a muscle, but in that sense, it's very much like a muscle. You've got to use it to keep it working right at its peak. And so Fred certainly is doing that by staying active, writing, speaking, doing programs like this one. Although he told me when I invited him to be on KPFK that he didn't do very many uh, interviews anymore, but he'd be happy to do it for this radio station and and this audience. But uh, imagine, 86 years old, boy, that's just phenomenal to me. Now, here's a guy who is really, really well known. And when you Google him as Dr. Quantum or as Fred Allen Wolf, and you look at some of the videos on YouTube and his books and such, you'll see that he's clearly identified as an expert in quantum physics and consciousness. And since this program is about the nature of consciousness, and Fred shares the idea that consciousness is indeed fundamental, there's nothing more basic, more elemental, than consciousness itself, that the appearance of all that is physical and which appears to be separate is in our awareness, not in our thoughts, although 
the way we think and the way we feel, and of course, the intentions behind that and the behavior that results from that all spring from consciousness. And each and every one of us is conscious to varying degrees throughout the day. You go to sleep, you are essentially unconscious, although the unconscious mind is, in a sense, conscious, as evidenced by the fact that you don't die, that <laughs> you're still breathing and your heart is beating and pulse and blood pressure are regulated and food is digested and the immune system is operating, repairing and replacing cells and fighting disease and so on. And, of course, the dreams that we often remember when we wake up in the morning, those are evidence of being conscious on an unconscious level. The terminology is a little confusing, and yet, again, when we sleep, although we appear to be unconscious, there is consciousness at work. And throughout the day, we say, oh, I was awake, I'm conscious, I'm driving the car, and yet, what are you thinking about? You know, How much time at work do you spend thinking about being out of work or on vacation? And then you go on vacation, and half of that time is spent thinking about work. <laughs> and I think everybody knows the difficulty with reading as slowly as we do, because We've been taught to sub-vocalize, and so at 250 or 300 words a minute, your brain is so bored that it's easily distracted. It looks for something else to do. One of the main challenges and maintaining focus and concentration when you read, you've got to learn to read 800, 1,000, 1,200 words a minute to really have the concentration you need to improve your comprehension. So it's easy to space out when you're conscious and be semi-conscious or unconscious or pre-conscious. But consciousness, awareness is probably the best synonym for it. Maybe we could say understanding. The two questions that I had for Fred that he wasn't really willing to comment on, I think he was able to, but I don't think he wanted to take off his scientist hat. Because I know he has opinions on these, but he wanted to speak as a scientist and, and not as Fred, who I've known for 40 years or more. But the one question about whether expanded awareness or higher consciousness carries with it an exalted set of ethics or values or morality, a moral authority, as I often call it. And I think it does. Fred didn't want to commit to that because so much of, quote, reality is how you look at it. So it's a variable, would depend on the individual. And yet there is a great overlap, generally murder and, and theft and lying. These things are considered to be unethical, immoral, and, and not the way you would want other people to treat you. And then the other question that Fred did not want to comment on at all, but I'm going to continue to look for somebody to help me out with this. The whole idea that a lie detector, a polygraph, which measures stress, demonstrates the link between lying or being deceitful and stressing your body, stimulating adrenaline and cortisol and suppressing the immune system. When you lie, when you seek to deceive, when you bear false witness, you're hurting yourself. You're promoting illness, disease, aging. Your body suffers as a result of those lies. Now, what does that say about the inherent goodness of human beings and the inherent goodness of the consciousness, which is the field or the ground of that beingness. See, I think we're inherently very, very good. And so these are variations on the theme of philosophy, morality, ethics, and the nature of consciousness as viewed by a philosopher, by psychology, by quantum physics, where the observer effect is such a part of the phenomenon. So if you permit me a segue here, if you enjoy this program, which is about consciousness, 
you're interested in the nature of awareness, insight, understanding, then I would have to assume that you're comfortable or learning to become more and more comfortable with a growing and expanding set of ethics and values. You want the world to be fair. You want it to be just. You're an anti-racist. You fight against misogyny and xenophobia. Uh, You see the good, the true, and beautiful in all people. And, of course, there is a shadow side. As a matter of fact, next week, we're going to talk about the shadow in in human beings from a Jungian point of view. So uh, stay tuned for that a week from today. My guest will be Dr. Connie Zweig, talking about the shadow side of humans. And so there's my appeal to you to make a contribution to KPFK. It's ethical. Nine out of ten listeners to this radio station never donate anything. So how much are we asking for? Well, you'll hear various program hosts ask for $100, $150, $250. We have premiums and thank you gifts to encourage you to give more. I'm usually promoting the Sustainer Circle, a subscription basis where you contribute $10 or $25 or more every month by setting it up once on the website, kpfk.org forward slash donate. And then you go to Sustainer's Circle, set it and forget it. 10 bucks a month, right? That's a nice contribution of 120 a year or double that for $240 a year, 20 bucks a month or more. But the truth of the matter is we ask for donations of just $25 a year. Now, what does that do? A, a, a one-time donation, once a year, $25. That makes you a KPFK member, a supporter of Pacifica, who is eligible then to participate in the management of this radio station. You can vote for members of the local station board. You can, if you meet the qualifications, You can run for a position on the local station board. And there's other ways for you to get involved if you just contribute $25 once a year. My goodness. That's a little bit over $2 a month, 50 cents a week. (laughs) Anybody can do that. Everybody can do that. And if everyone did, boy, we'd be unlike Flynn. Our problems would be solved. But most people won't. Because... You're invisible, sort of like the internet. You're out there, you're listening, nobody knows who you are. You can listen for free, nobody's going to know. Nobody except you. And does that stress you? Is that wearing on your conscience to dip into this commercial-free, non-profit, progressive radio station programming 24-7, 365 days a year, Holidays, Christmas morning, somebody's on KPFK, New Year's Eve at midnight, there's somebody here broadcasting on KPFK. And they do it for you, and they do it for me, they do it for our families, they do it for the community that is Los Angeles and Southern California, they do it for the nation, and the truth is we do it for the world. So wherever you happen to be right now, You could be in the interior of China. And I know I have podcast listeners all over the world, inside China, all through Asia, in some of the most repressive countries in the Middle East. KPFK is available on the Internet. In some remote places where people are not even on the grid, I have friends in Hawaii who are able to listen via direct download from a satellite to KPFK, all across Europe, Africa, South America, not to mention North America, wherever you are, you can listen to this radio station and you can make a heartfelt contribution to this radio station of as little as $25 once a year. Just go to kpfk.org, kpfk.org slash donate and poke around in there. There's lots of different Subscriber gifts, thank you gifts, and premiums. kpfk.org slash donate. I appreciate it. Everyone here appreciates it. 
So thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. Join us every Tuesday at 1 o'clock for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. This program is podcast on all podcast platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. It streams on demand at theagelesswisdom.com. You can download the MP3 there too, theagelesswisdom.com. And if you think I might be able to be a resource for you, check me out at michaelbenner.com. That's all easy to remember. Be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner.